camping? <laughs> Boring or wholesome? <laughs> I love this question. podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Hello, and welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie didn't live up to the hype for them, and it didn't live up to the hype for them at all. <laughs> um, my name is Justin, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by Dave, and we're going to be watching a movie that he has never seen before, Brokeback Mountain from 2005. Dave, you've appeared as a guest once before on this show. Do you remember how it goes? I do indeed. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Thank you for being here. Now, I've got some notes about the about the intro okay let's hear it (laughs) (laughs) no it's actually um very pleasant to not have to do any of the surrounding work so i'm pretty glad to have it all be in your court for once and not have to do anything besides talk it's it's my pleasure i hope that you uh don't let me down Oh, shit. Pressure's on. <laughs> the pressure's on. Goddamn, it's true. I've only been a straight-up guest once, and we all know how that went. Interesting choice of words, Dave. Straight-up guest. Oh! Oh-ho-ho-ho. Uh, um, so, let me ask you this. Why am I hosting this particular episode? Well, Justin, I asked you if you wanted to watch a movie for the podcast, and... You expressed the desire to watch this movie for the podcast in particular because it has a theme to it. And that theme can best be expressed in a series of numerals, those numerals being LGBTQIA. And um, you, I believe, are a part of that community, if I'm not mistaken. I am. And I don't mean to out you here, but you are not a part of that community, are you? You're a straight man. Well, it's an ever-expanding set of definitions, so I feel like at some point it's going to get to me somehow. And if it did did get to you, what would the the letter be? I was going to say Q, but it's already a... (laughs) Q for what? (laughs) Oh, I'm super into QAnon. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, no, but I'm a, I'm a, a straight white cis het. I'm all the, I'm all the boring things. 
as tempting as it is to corner you to talking about your sexuality for the duration of this podcast, um, I guess the point is the movie, right? Well, I mean, you know, whatever, we can digress. All right. Well, that's good to know. We might get to that at some point. Um, have you heard of this movie? I have. Okay. Of course you have. What do you think this movie's about? So I think I've got a pretty good sense of it because it was a popular film when it came out. I think it is about two cowboys who are both men who are in the same place for some reason or another. Maybe they're hired to do the same job or they're working on the same ranch, which I guess is the same way, a different way of saying the same thing. Uh, But they wind up falling in love with each other and it takes place i think in a time period where that is not acceptable and so they have to carry on a relationship in secret what time period do you think it takes place on and full full disclosure i haven't rewatched the movie for this yet so i i'm pretty fuzzy on that too okay um yeah and uh, just to make it clear too the reason why Justin is hosting is not simply because he brings a particular brand of expertise to the subject matter, but also because this is the rare scenario in which um, the quote unquote guest has seen the film and I have not. So it makes right. sense to flip the hosting duties this time around. Right, right. Um, I'm going to guess that this takes place over an extended period of time so maybe it covers a couple of decades but it starts i'm gonna say in the 60s okay yeah i don't remember actually um and i'm not gonna confirm whether that's uh, whether i think that's true or not but that is an observation and a thought (laughs) okay all right so we have a good sense of your sense of timing in the plot of this film and what you think it's about. As far as you know, does this have any reputation, a culturally significant reputation? Yeah, it's supposedly really, really good. Um, I remember when it came out, it got a lot of hype for being a really great drama and for being uh, visually very stunning. Like I think, you know, because they're cowboys, there's like a lot of like beautiful vistas when they go riding, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, the acting is supposed to be good. So I guess this starts getting into who I think is in the movie. Right. Who do you think is in the movie? I think I got this pretty down to, I know two and I'm softer on two more, but feel good about it. So the leads are, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal and they're the two cowboys and I think also in the movie are Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway but I'm less sure about them okay and is there anybody anyone that you think might be in the movie that you know or that you would expect to maybe see in the movie other than these four actors oh Anyone I would expect to see in the movie? I'm not sure why I asked that. <laughs> hmm. I mean, you, you mean like some who, someone who's a queer icon or... 
I don't know. I, I I'm not even sure. Like I guess it. Okay, I was reading the 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 list of actors that are in this movie uh, this week preparing for this, and I was like, I don't remember these people being in this movie. So I mean, my expectation for this film is that it's going to be mostly just the main two guys for most of it, because mm-hmm. you know it's going to be mostly their love story, and since it's cowboys, they'll probably be off on their own most of the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I I can't imagine they're being that many other parts in the movie frankly okay so you think it's going to be mainly centered around these two characters very few appearances by other actors i think so okay you've already mentioned the type of place that you think this uh occurs a ranch and you've you've mentioned vistas but do you have an idea of where geographically this this takes place wyoming okay i'm gonna say why uh it's not the American Southwest. It's I'm going to say like Montana. Um, you know, that it's more it's it's green cowboys, not red cowboys. <laughs> in terms of like the the color of the land they're riding through. E- they're like eco-friendly cowboys. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's going to be like forests and trees and green grass, not like mesas and dusty paths. All right, but we're talking like central united states somewhere central maybe a little northern okay and um are there any quotes or like popular sayings that emerge from this film that you remember that you know about there's one and Uh, it's gotta be it's gotta be the one right (laughs) say it dave tell me I, i just wish i could quit you i wish i could quit you too dave I know. We're, we're in this for life. Podcasters for life, baby. It's not just a lifestyle. It's something you're born with, podcasting. <laughs> um, are there any like particular visuals, like shots or images? I guess you've already sort of like touched on that by mentioning the wide open vistas. Yeah, yeah, it's mostly the vis- the, the vistas. The vistas. I, I can mostly think of the vistas. Um, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. Oh, there's there, there is another one. There's a low angle shot from below Heath Ledger, uh, where there's fireworks happening above him. And he's like standing there and something bad must have happened because he looks really lonely and there's like fireworks happening. Probably the fireworks are like to make a contrast of like how sad he is versus the happy fireworks. And that's an image I think I remember seeing a lot when this movie came out. Okay. Yeah. I like the kind of image that could have been like, let's say this was up for some sort of an award um mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. could have been in the montage or something yeah okay. totally it's, um, it's a trailer bait piece of, uh, <laughs> filmmaking well yeah because you would have seen the trailer yeah probably watched it on, on, on repeat alone at night yep when my roommate was out you know just watch it over and over again under the covers I should, I mean, at this point, I feel like I need to clarify I am gay and this is why we're doing this. I never, I realized I was like, I am. You never uh, actually said. Well, yeah. I never said it and we, we flirted with it, but uh, we should make this clear. Um, 
because when we do talk about why I chose this movie, obviously that's a big, it, it had some influence on me. And I think I want to get to that, you know, after we watch it, but sure. Thinking back at how young I was when I saw it and at the arc of my uh, homosexual storyline or my personal mythology, like this movie had a specific place in in my coming to accept and love myself for my gayness. So like, yeah. I think that's good. And when the movie came out, I was almost surprised it was such a big deal because I had thought by then that we had already accepted homosexuality more than it turned out we did. Like I was already kind of like way I was past it mm-hmm. and like I was over it. Well, you were um, a the- you were a theater kid. So like right. in a way that's like I also like went to this summer camp that had a very like uh inclusion and uh an diversity active, like you an know, active night scene. <laughs> right, yeah. No. But it was it was very much about like preaching like diversity to kids kind of stuff. Um so I just like it wasn't something that I thought about anymore. And so when the movie came out and was such a huge deal for everybody, I was almost kind of like well, not almost. I was I was confused. I was like, why? Like, you know, this it just seemed like normal to me. Why is everybody else finding it such a strange thing? Mm-hmm. Or like why why is this such a like a breakthrough moment? Yeah, why does it have to be a breakthrough moment? You know, it was uh, it caught me off guard. And so I didn't wind up seeing it, I think partially just because I was like, I don't need to. Yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting to talk about. I mean, part of why I wanted to talk about this movie is also because it's it's interesting to think about these issues um, in contrast to where we're at now um, and the kind of growth that still needs to happen slash as a reflection of the growth that has happened. Like, could this movie be made in 2021? Like, yeah, what would not pass and what would it be criticized for now versus also it'll be interesting, interesting to talk about like, the the backlash that it faced um when it did come out um and the praise that it got and why yeah well that is the other thing is that like you know one i have to actually see the movie to see what's in it and two uh you know you have there's the narcissism of thinking that the way you think about something is the way the rest of the country or the world views something right right which is i mean in and of itself like a a, a byproduct of privilege when you don't have to face discrimination or adversity, you kind of forget that it exists. Um, so it'll be, you know, I, I do think this will be a good discussion for the second part of the, sure. of the podcast, but it'll be interesting to talk about why it might've felt like a big deal to me as someone who oh, is yeah. gay and didn't necessarily feel like a big deal to you as someone who isn't. Hmm. Um, but getting back on track in our predictions okay um what kind of music are you expecting to hear in the score for this film oh geez um you know i didn't think about that one if i had to guess i'm gonna say mostly orchestral standard movie score kind of stuff but there will also be 
some occasional like acoustic guitar kind of you know like when they're sitting together and talking uh in front of the fire you know at night or something like that there'll be kind of like a a, a late motif for their love story kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. am i am i close to the mark i'm trying <laughs> like, i'm trying to read your poker face <laughs> my poker face is saying are you sure you haven't seen this movie before oh yes <laughs> um I guess uh, I love how, okay, full dis, uh, full disclosure, I think that's the second time I've said that already, but um, you sent me a Google sheet with, you know, a guideline of questions that you usually ask for these. And um, yeah. there's one the, the one question where it says, any toys or products from the series? <laughs> and then you put in brackets, not for this one. <laughs> I wonder, actually, I want to see if there were any toys or action figures, maybe a niche market, you know, for adult uh, action figures that was made for this. Yeah. Um, and in point of fact, the the not for this one, I did not put in specifically for this movie. That's just part of the standard template. I only take it out when uh, I'm doing a movie like, say, Gremlins or something. Uh, that I know has uh, or like a kid's movie that has a lot of toys right. related to it. So. <laughs> um, and then the last question related to this, I guess, do you, you have any other predictions for this film or any hopes for what it will bring to you as a viewer? Well, I don't know if the, this is a prediction or a hope or what. Um, my expectation is that there's going to be a part of the movie where they encounter uh, homophobia, you know, because I imagine they're trying to keep their relationship a secret. And I imagine that at some point it will probably become known by somebody. But what I'm kind of hoping does not happen is... um. You know, it, there, are you familiar with the trope, bury your gaze? No. It's a trope, uh, and the term about that trope is, signifies that um, w- uh, basically in a lot of media, when there are gay characters, uh, they tend to die more frequently than straight characters. Mm-hmm. And when there are gay couples, uh, the couple's story tends to end in tragedy more often than for straight couples. And so I'm just, I'm kind of really hoping that basically one of them is not killed at the end of this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I would really like that this story ends differently than that. Okay. So your hope is that nobody dies. Well, I mean, you know, if it's a story where both of them make it to old age and they die that way, I'd be fine with that, too. But I'm just, you know, look, it's been a long pandemic. I'm craving a happy ending. (laughs) Okay. How are you feeling about the the dynamic of, like, you know, talking about a queer movie with me, a queer person, and having this sort of exchange it sometimes can feel a little bit like uncomfortable i think it can feel a little bit like charged but you know we know each other so well that like i would hope it wouldn't be that way with me but you know you're putting this out into the world so does that change 
how you're approaching this compared to how you've approached discussions around previous movies? Well, I mean, given the way we're approaching the movie, it's causing me to want to be thoughtful. Mm. You know, I mean, basically we are choosing to do this movie for this reason and to look at it through this lens. And so in reviewing it and talking about it later, I'm not going to review it the same way I would say uh, Step Brothers or Gremlins or something where I might be a little bit more flippant. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I'm definitely going to kind of be a little bit more, you know, thoughtful in the way I give my responses to things and think about it. And, you know, um, I think it's more just not the fact that you are queer or you're my friend and more just the fact that like we're choosing to take on this movie for this reason and do this. So I want to make sure that I, you know, treat it with a little bit of respect and also don't get myself canceled. Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) all right. But I mean, you know, the fact that you do have this perspective, I think is going to be good because it brings something to the table that I can't offer for this movie. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in terms of my own personal experience with the movie, especially. um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, too. Um, I'm very happy that we're doing it this way. I guess that finishes our portion of predictions. I have one last question, which is not related to the podcast. Okay. We were emailing leading up to this to plan for the recording. And a day ago, you emailed me this. Bones, 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 rattle, rattle. Bones, 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 rattle, rattle. Click, clack, rub, snap, thump, bump, grind, clack, bones, badunchun. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> what that means is, um, I believe if you look at the timestamp, it was probably very late in the day while I was at work. And um, 2.37 p.m. Oh, geez. Didn't even make it to three o'clock before I started losing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's a song that they taught us in elementary school music class. And it goes a little something like this. Bones, 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 rattle, rattle. Bones, 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 rattle, rattle. Click, clack, rub, snap, thump, bump, grind, clack, bones. But you do, yeah. <laughs> and since you did not grow up in the same town as me, I was curious if you recognized it, if they also taught this classic elementary school song in Canada. I <laughs> so, did not. I did not. Apparently not. No. <laughs> I'm glad that it went this way because now I got to hear you sing. And while you're on it, do you think that you could sing like, let's say, Respect by Aretha Franklin without using any words, just humming? Get fucked, Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that concludes the first portion of this podcast. We will watch the movie and then we will discuss. Right on. All right. Thank you, Dave. Brokeback Mountain, yeah! This is the part where we're watching the movie. 
Welcome back from Wyoming. You were right. Yes. <laughs> Nailed um, it. Not Montana. Um, but I got got it on my other try. Yeah, you were you got it. You got it. You had actually a lot of accurate predictions. Was it Yeah. Did that yeah. did that make up for the fact that this was not the happy ending that you were hoping to get? Well, it wasn't a happy ending, no, but it was in some ways bittersweet, which I'll take. It wasn't the like absolute tragedy that I was dreading. I mean, you know, that's de- it was melancholy, but you know, it wasn't a violent, horrifying ending. Is more what I was hoping not to have to deal with. I mean, not in the not in the clear cut sense of the term, but I think it's open for uh, quite a bit of interpretation. It potentially could have been. I'm choosing, and I'm sure we'll get to that uh, when we t- actually talk about the ending. But uh, I am choosing to interpret that as just having been his paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Um, well, we can, yeah, we can get it's open to interpretation. We we'll get to that because I know we um, will do like a little plot summary, right? Yeah, I'm hoping that Dave, you can like help guide me through this part of the podcast because I you have such a good like sense of how to uh, unfold the recap and everything for the listener. Sure, and actually, I am gonna take back control just for a second because. Um, I wanted to mention something that I wanted to make sure was something we talk about at the beginning of this part of the discussion as we're starting part two here. So the reason, part of the reason why we're doing this movie is because I wanted to make a particular effort to watch the kinds of movies that I don't normally choose to see. You know, I've got kind of real basic bitch movie watching tendencies i like to see superhero shit sci-fi stuff you know so i wanted to make sure that i was trying to target movies by like black filmmakers women filmmakers queer cinema that kind of thing and you know i've had some limited success actually getting myself to do that but i'm trying my best and so i asked you if you wanted to take part in doing one of those episodes and you said yeah Mm mm-hmm And I asked you if you wanted to pick the film. Yeah. And so we talked about it for a while, and you picked this movie. And I got to say, at first, I was a little bit surprised by your choice because, as you alluded to in part one, you know, we were going over all these other sort of queer cinema choices. And again, as you alluded to in part one, they're is a little bit of a question as to whether or not this film would even count in a certain way, which I imagine we'll talk about eventually. But then, as you also alluded to, this you said that this movie is important to you. So, you know, on your personal uh, journey and story. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Why did you pick this film? Yeah, actually, it's funny to think back because it's, not something that I even remembered super clearly, but I was brought back to, I guess, 2005 when I watched this, and I would have been 21, 20 or 21. I had come out, I guess, semi-officially. I had like a, you know, like a lot of queer men, a bit of a vague extended coming out, you know? There was like mm-hmm. a, a, a bit of time where I was like, I might be bi, I don't know. <laughs> and right, then, it's a process. Yeah, and... 
Um, I mean, there just wasn't, this wasn't even like that long ago, I guess. Uh, it, it didn't feel like there was that much a serious media, a serious queer media that was like in the, the zeitgeist and in the mainstream. Maybe zeitgeist is not the right word because there's, I think, always been a, a, a lot of like underground and like niche and especially art house, like examples of queer films and production and coded stuff yeah a lot of coded stuff and but this was like super super mainstream and um i mean back when i saw this i mean i hadn't really exposed myself to a lot of uh queer movies and it was one of the first instances where i really felt like i saw something and i was like i want that you know like i want to have this sort of love story and i felt so deeply um moved by it and I'm, I I think the the thing that makes it a bit complicated is there's like notions, a lot of notions of like feeling unlovable that I think are a common theme for people that grow up and feel a sense of being different. And maybe that's part of what makes this, this love story so powerful is like, it's a type of love that has to break through so many barriers that it's like proven to be more powerful than anything else. In, in the emotional mix. And I think that's part of what drew me to it. Cause I was like, oh, like I can just trust that it'll happen no matter how like difficult my feelings are around this and how many like obstacles I may feel like lie before me, both internally and externally that like, yeah, a, a love could present itself that was so powerful it's find its way through these barriers somehow yeah yeah um mm. yeah i mean i'd never seen like a gay love story uh in a theater you know so mm. so to see it felt like what's the right word it was it was like refreshing not just refreshing like informative and opening up a sense of like craving something because it felt so much more possible. Um, yeah, like it was, it was a pretty big deal for me at the time. Hmm. You know, it's funny because, you know, we were friends even at the time and I remember you talking about the film and how much that you liked the film, but I never grokked how important you found the movie. Yeah, and in a way, I don't think I was able to process it uh, fully back then. I just saw it, and I was like, oh, I want to be in love so badly. Mm. And I'd never left a... Like, you know, I, 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 I don't think I'd ever left a movie feeling like I just want to be in love. Maybe I had. I probably <laughs> had <laughs> to a certain extent, but not like this. This was yeah. like... It was like I, I had a cer- certain, like... I idolized this sense of love that I got through this movie, even though there's so many complicated and dark issues around it. And so many things that obviously, I don't know. It was like the fact. Well, yeah. I mean, going a little bit against what I said earlier, it is tragic, the story in a lot of ways, but to a certain extent that to people has a tendency to make it even more beautiful. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I was some, you know, to be honest, I was kind of expecting to rewatch it and to feel way less 
um, involved in the story and way less affected by it. And more, I was kind of going in a bit with fisticuffs, like thinking I'm going to notice all of these things that now will bother me about this movie. Like thinking like, is this the first time you've seen it since that first time? Yeah. Okay. This is the, and the first time was when it was out in theaters in 2005. I actually thought you were there, like in my memory of, of seeing it in, in Harvard square. I thought that I know Caroline was there, but I don't, I, I thought you were there too. Um, yeah, I was kind of expecting to, to watch it and think like, Oh, like now I can see how they got it so wrong, but I none. I mean, maybe they did, but it that was so far from my experience rewatching it, and I totally fell into it again, and I was like nice. deeply moved again. I like bawled. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I like I I like bawled at the end, and it was like, it's just so to me. It's so beautiful, so sad, and yeah. Um, also just like the acting in it is, I think, incredible. I, I'm planning on bringing that up too. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. One other thing that comes to mind, um, because I, I, I was thinking about, you know, this list of, of queer movies and there's a, a few, like there's a French Canadian film called crazy, that I thought would have been really interesting to watch, but it's maybe less of a big deal outside of Quebec. Um, I I thought the first thought was actually Paris is Burning, which is like a iconic queer movie from the 80s about the Vogue ball scene in New York. But I was a bit hesitant to watch and discuss that movie particularly because it's such um, a testament to the like the black community and the trans community in New York. And I feel like, it's not something you can speak to as much. Yeah, like I feel less equipped, um, and sure. maybe I, I, it's it wouldn't be fair for me to try to portray, you know. Yeah, you took something about. that you had more of a personal connection to. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I get it. So cool. Yeah. So I guess a little bit of background on this film. Sure. Let's do it. Um, and I'm kind of excited to talk about this because, um, yeah. So this movie is based on a novella by Annie Prue. Mm-hmm. who is a writer that I came to love after um, I, I did. I liked this movie so much that I read the novella. Um, I read it in, it was the last piece in a book of short stories. It, it was actually originally published for The New Yorker uh, in 1997, and it won a bunch of awards, uh, but then it was republished as a book of short stories called Wyoming Stories. The full title is mm-hmm. Close Range Wyoming Stories. <laughs> Um, and is it good? It's really good. Yeah. It's the only queer story in the book. Um, they're all, Hmm. she has a way of writing that really kind of like embodies, uh, accents and vocal affectations. Like all the dialogue, uh, it feels very like acted. It's like delivered in a way that you get a sense of personality and, um, kind of like a, like in train spotting. Oh yeah, yeah, like Clockwork Orange, <laughs> right? No. Um, yeah, the book. The book I thought was really good. I read it a long time ago, but I I thought it was pretty immersive and really beautifully written. And she also wrote the Shipping News, which was another oh, book that was made into a movie. And um, I think she has some French Canadian family. The Shipping News takes place in Newfoundland, 
and I think I forget who was in it. I think Kevin's was Kevin, Kevin Spacey. Spacey. Yeah. Ugh. Romp. <laughs> but yeah, that's another. I haven't read th- that book, but I I love the the film adaptation of that book as well. But um, yeah, Wyoming stories. Uh, so yeah, the short story itself, the novella, won a bunch of awards, and then the collection of short stories. Um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in the, oh, in two thousand. So she's well known, well established. Cool. And by all accounts, um, the screenplay is really well adapted. I mean, I remember feeling that way too. And it's kind of amazing considering the book is so short. I think it's only about 100 pages. Yeah, although, you know, there's not a ton of dialogue. You know, so much of this is... uh, (laughs) We're going to use the word sweeping vistas so much. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. But um, th- there is also just a lot that's portrayed uh, without words in this movie. Yeah, you know? which so. I personally have a thing for like movies with very very little dialogue. I like when information can be conveyed non-verbally. I tend to appreciate that. Which this film, I think, carries that ethos forward. Not only in the purely non-verbal acting, but even when there is dialogue. I find there's often a sense of like deep emotional intelligence. So like mm-hmm. you're given bits and pieces, but as a viewer, as a, as a viewer, you really have to um, read into things. You have to put a certain amount of output to, to put all the pieces together. Um, yeah. Especially, I mean, especially Heath Ledger's performance is just so um, it's so emotionally closed off to himself and yet you are able to read so much into him. Yeah. You know, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I agree. I felt, I think that was the biggest shift I sort of noticed watching it now versus when I was younger is, I mean, when I was younger, it was like all about their love, but now it was all about this complex emotional landscape the the complex emotional sweeping vista of Heath Ledger's character. <laughs> yeah. It, I most of the movie for me was just being like awed by his acting yeah. in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean other people too, which and we'll talk about too, but so much him, Jesus. He's captivating. I mean, yeah. It's hard to take your eyes off of him because he embodies the role so well. And I read a little tidbit actually about how Annie Prue um she sent a copy of the book, I think it was the the short stories, uh, to both of them. Um and on Jake Gyllenhaal's version she wrote to Jake Gyllenhaal, but on Heath Ledger's she wrote to Ines Del Mar. And hmm. she did it by accident, but then she realized like I, I, she said something about how she just felt like he embodied the characters so fully that he became him. And totally. So she was unable to change it. She was just like, no, this is this. He has become in Yeah. I was going to say, we forgot to mention in part one, the director. Right. Right. So, well, in part one of the podcast, cause I thought that was yeah. still, I guess it's not a secret, but Ang Lee directed this. Um, his previous, his big biggest previous movie was Godzilla. Was it Godzilla? <laughs> Wasn't it? I'd actually, okay, I did not look up his other movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, for American audiences, he had made the Hulk movie. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but not the, like, it was like the first remake of the Hulk, right? Like, not... The bad one. The bad one, yeah. Who played With the Eric Hulk? Bana. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, he, he'd also done Crouching Tiger. Oh, I did yeah. not know that. And um, there's also a movie that he did for Western audiences that wasn't like a huge hit or anything, but uh, some people know it called The Ice Storm. Oh, yeah. That is with uh, Kieran Culkin? No, it, but it, it, it does seemingly have everybody in it. It's got like Elijah Wood, Christina Ricci, Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver, Joan Allen... Um, Jay, uh, not Jake Gyllenhaal, the other one, uh, Toby Maguire. Um, <laughs> not Jake Gyllenhaal, Toby Maguire. <laughs> right. Uh, like he's got so many people in it, but, um, that, that movie is pretty good, but you know, and he also is just like a absolute star of, uh, Asian cinema mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we watched big, the, big name. we watched the ice storm like a few times together in high school, I think. We were kind of like into that movie. Um, Yeah. yeah. Ang Lee. So uh, in terms of the cast, I guess we can go through the cast and then we can talk about the plot a little bit. Um, Sure. We've got Heath Ledger as Ennis Del Mar, a Wyoming shepherder who develops an emotional relationship with Jack, although Ennis is reluctant in displaying his affection. Uh, We've got Jake Gyllenhaal as Jack Twist. Um, and Great name. Michelle William as Alma Beers Del Mar, Ennis's eventual wife, and Hathaway. And this is like one of her kind of earlier roles, right? Yeah. And it, I guess it was before society at large, for a reason I cannot explain, decided that we all hate her. Did society decide that? It seemed like that to me. Oh. Like there just, there came this like Anne Hathaway saturation point where she was like getting more and more roles. Her star was rising. And then everyone was suddenly like, all right, you know what? Fuck you, Anne Hathaway. We hate you now. <laughs> and I was like, I don't get it. I think she's fine. I don't remember that. Oh, maybe I'm just too online. I guess to me, was that like pre Les Mis? Cause I feel like then she, I think it was around Les Mis and when that... people huh. turned on her. I could be wrong about this. This could just be a what I me thing, like the the Twitter circles that I run in. <laughs> so yeah, Anne Hathaway as Loreen Newsome Twist, Jack's eventual wife. <laughs> it's a terrible last name. <laughs> Twist, um, or Newsome. Mm. You don't you don't like the last name Newsome? Newsome's fine. Twist, I would change. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to name a cocktail after myself. Every yeah. <laughs> every time I'd make someone a cocktail, I'd be. Would you like a twist of lime with that? Would you like it with a twist? <laughs> um, if you were a cocktail waiter, you'd be hitting on people all the time. Randy Quaid, who is uh, pretty detestable in this, as um, Randall, as he is in life, as he's in life, yeah. Uh, Randy Quaid as Joe Aguirre or Aguirre. I forget if they mentioned his Aguirre. last Aguirre. I- I did not acquire a taste for his character. <laughs> um, Linda Cardellini. 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 She was in Freaks and Geeks, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of cool to notice her. I don't remember her being in this. I didn't know she was in this either. She also did a run on Mad Men 
and I think she dates Don Draper, so making a real um, uh, career out of dating emotionally uh, <laughs> absent <laughs> alpha males. There was also some other movie I remember her being in recently, but and and being like, oh yeah, it's I always just think of her as the girl from Freaks and Geeks, Anna Faris. As uh, the very yeah. talkative LaShawn Malone. So she's got a brief role in this. Yeah. Uh, David Harbour from Stranger David Things. David Harbour. Yeah. I, I wrote him down right some. I was like, it was his voice that I recognized. Yeah. He, I was like, is that David Harbour? I know. He doesn't look at, like quite as recognizable. But yeah, so he has a, a, a very fleeting, flirtatious exchange with Jack Twist that makes you wonder what could have been or maybe he is the other the other cowboy that uh the dad mentions at the end you know yeah i think so i think so too that's the sense i got um i mean there's a, f- a few other main actors those, but are the th- those are the big ones and even through that list i mean there's only really four that we follow for an extended period of time so there's yeah. a very small oh, amount there's also kate mara plays the daughter Oh, a bit too. right, right, right. She's actually really good in this too. And that, I think that, that, um, aspect of the plot introduces like an unexpected depth to it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is the cast. Like, I guess your predictions were, I mean, pretty spot on. Yeah. I mean, that, that one wasn't too hard because it was a huge film and I just kind of remembered who was in it. So I'm not I'm not going to take too much of a victory lap on that one. No, I think you're. I mean, I I, I do think you did a good job and good job, thank Dave. You. <laughs> but, thank you, thank you. But your predictions are also testament to the fact that this movie has made it so into the mainstream. So even someone that hasn't seen it has gotten a lot of information about it. Yeah, and you know, just in terms of the cast again, acting wise, everyone was really good. But it's – Jake Gyllenhaal's good in it too, you know, and I like Jake Gyllenhaal. But it is crazy how much Heath Ledger runs away with this movie. Yeah. I thought Michelle Williams, actually, her performance is pretty remarkable too. She's a great actress too. Yeah. Everyone in it's good. Everyone in it does a very good job. But, you know, th- this is going to be the only time that I bring up the Joker as a character because I don't want to – just I just don't want to bring that up too much. But um what I find interesting about the fact that these are probably the two roles that are most associated with Heath Ledger. And um they are so interestingly diametrically opposed. Yeah. One is the most repressed person I've ever seen. And the other one is the person who is the most, he's so free of inhibitions, he's insane, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, the Joker, the Joker has nothing holding him back about anything. You know, it wouldn't even occur to him to have an inhibition about anything at all. So the fact that he so fully embodied two such diametrically opposite roles is pretty incredible and like fully disappeared into them. Mm -hmm. Like you could not tell that that, that they were the same person. Yeah. Yeah. So much contrast. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like that. 
anyway um let's see so should we talk about the plot a little bit yeah let's do recap i want to um i want to just mention that do uh, do you ever notice the um the production logos at the start of movies uh yeah i do i mean this one was wasn't focus the only production logo at the beginning of this no it wasn't because i got thrown by river road entertainment because i thought that production logo was actually the start of the movie oh it's a it's a car driving on a dark road oh and right, like, right it right. even has some music to go along with it and so i was like <laughs> all right here we go and then it like popped up river road entertainment i was like god damn it so the plot opens with river road entertainment logo <laughs> yeah um and i see here's another area in which you were uh correct in your predictions so it does start in the 60s i think you said that. so it starts in 1963 in signal wyoming it opens basically with ennis del mar and jack twist um being hired by joe aguire to herd his sheep through the summer on brokeback mountain right right and um I, i was curious about this um as they were kind of spending this summer number one um is Heath Ledger hot? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like Heath Ledger in this, I think, yeah, Ben was watching it with me and I was like, I can't believe how hot Heath Ledger is in this. And like, I think when I watched it when I was younger, I was more kind of like into Jake Gyllenhaal. But mm-hmm. it's not just that he is just physically so attractive. There's something about his storyline, the fact that he is kind of abandoned i mean he talks about you know pretty pretty early yeah, on he's in, got he's got the story the, yeah the, the, the orphan story the orphan story he was kind of raised by his brothers and sisters and then eventually there was no no more room for him so that's why he's up here working for himself and he's just so quiet he just seems to suffer silently so much and you like i just felt so much for him and i just wanted so badly to keep him warm and make him feel better. <laughs> He's like an abandoned puppy. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And he also, I, just, I don't know if yeah. you 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 picked up on this, but to me, I had never noticed how much he looks like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I maybe in the eyes. In the eyes, like to me they they look so similar. See, for me it was just um I think Heath Ledger has a very long face. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's true. So that I was kind of like, is is that hot? I don't know. I couldn't tell. Because he, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is more uh, classically attractive. Debatable. Okay. I mean, you know, to each their own. To, yeah, to each their own <laughs> taste, right. We've had long discussions about which Game of Thrones person is more attractive. So <laughs> we clearly don't agree on this. Um. So they get the job. They're up herding sheep in the storyline. One of them has to stay at camp and one of them has to go up to basically keep watch on the sheep and like kill coyotes as they appear. And um, they just come down for supper. Right. And they sleep separately in these different areas. Right. Um, And throughout I mean, in the story, it's Jack's second time in Brokeback, so he's kind of seasoned and talking about, you know, the uh, about uh, what's his name, the Aguire there, Randy. Oh yeah, uh, Joe. Yeah, they're just talking about how like nothing's ever good for him, and they always give, you know, he always gives people a hard time and blah blah blah. 
Um, and then they slowly kind of get closer. I mean, it happens pretty quickly, but you get the sense that it's over a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they start off very different people too. I mean, Jack is a little, is much more agrarious and, um, Enos is like, he's the like classic cowboy. He's like, you know, man of few words, like yeah. not talkative, not open at all. Yeah. Keeps it all locked up. Like just so cowboy stuff and um i feel like well actually before we even get to that i was i had two just straight up questions that aren't related to the movie for you one have you ever ridden a horse um i think when i was little yeah but not in a long time oh um i have but the last time i have i had a bit of an incident so oh right um, was that in a peru or something Right, yeah. So I think I could probably do it again, but if I had to do it through the mountains like that, I might have a PS PTSD incident. Uh, yeah, so. it seems seems terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Under those circumstances, yeah. And then the other the other question I had was, um, camping, <laughs> boring or wholesome? <laughs> I love this question. Oh man, I don't know. Like camping is kind of like a is kind of a double-edged i don't know if double-edged sword is the right word it's like i love the idea of it and then whenever i am camping i'm like i don't like this that much right (laughs) yeah same yeah i kind of look at it and i'm like that looks great just like you're out there great outdoors and those hats looks awesome and then i feel like once i was in the situation without my phone i would just be miserable yeah well i think this this scene like right before the the infamous sex scene when Innes is like stuck outside after falling asleep and he wakes up shivering because it's so cold and he's like clearly like uh that's kind of my experience camping <laughs> right well right before we get to that let me just ask this so as as we're nearing the point where they actually do start a relationship they are slowly bonding yeah uh as they spend time on the mountain what i'm wondering about is um is this Jack's first rodeo, so to speak? Like, has he ever had a relationship with another man before? Because there are a few moments, like when um, Enos hits his head and Jack is, like, kind of touching it up. Yeah. And a few other times when, th- kind of throughout the whole prelude, when Jack is suggesting that Enos stay with him in camp, it felt a little seductive. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like, does Jack intend for this to happen or is this just sort of happening happening naturally? Yeah. The way that I read into it was like Jack's character is more sure of his queerness. Like he's aware of this desire that he has. I mean, in rewatching it, you kind of see it from the first moment he looks at Innes' character. Like there is this sense of like, you know, the, the longing gaze and um, he's the one who's more forward, you know, and is advancement and i think the first kind of intimate moment is the one that you mentioned where um innis's character has just had like a bear encounter right. um and his mule again coded co- case <laughs> a bear encounter yeah <laughs> and then there's like the the mules run away and scatter their food everywhere and he bangs his head up and then jack tries to wash the wound a little bit and he grabs it's charged it's charged it's like he's caring about him and that they're they're bonding in a way that it feels increasingly intimate but jack is always the one leading those moments right so that's the that's the vibe i got it was like jack whether 
it's his first rodeo or not. Uh, you don't, yeah, you don't really know. It's not confirmed, but you get the sense that he knows what he wants. Whereas um, there's like a passing line from Innes where he says, you know, they're talking about the Pentecost and, um, and Innes asks Jack, what is the Pentecost? And Jack says, I think it's like where people go to heaven and sinners like us go to hell. And Innes says, mm-hmm. well, I ain't got the opportunity to sin yet. So you know that he's a virgin. Ah, uh. So you get the sense of him being that, complete, yeah. completely inexperienced. And so maybe not, he doesn't really know. Like he's so closed off and inexperienced and he doesn't know what he wants. Gotcha. Which gotcha. makes makes sense of his performance too. Like he's so taken by surprise. You know, there's a lot of shock in that moment. Mm. A desire, well, shock and desire. Let's, yeah, let's let's talk about it. So we actually get to the scene where they finally have sex Mm -hmm. and number one i was thinking this movie must have led to a lot of gay panic amongst like hyper masculine cowboy types interesting i didn't think about that i mean we i i it'll be interesting to talk about their critical response on both you know the conservative side and the people that are really pro the movie but i didn't think about the cowboy community (laughs) (laughs) yeah but yeah Yeah. it it is a community yeah Yeah, they still exist do they still have clowns that uh distract the bulls after the rodeos well i mean there's still rodeos so i believe that is still a job yeah yeah but um regardless we have this sex scene and i remember you talking about this even back in 2005 so i want to give you an opportunity to talk about it now (laughs) what i'm more curious what did i say about it in 2005 you mostly said that it was really hot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel as... Hot. Or intense, I yeah. should say. Yeah, like, I guess... Very, very intense. Watching it at that age, I was, like, I was like all about the sex scene. And now, watching it this time, I was way more into the second intimate scene where they don't have sex and they just, like, hold each other. And you can see that, that Innes is, like, starved for affection and for love. And he's starting to... Or sorry, Innes. Is that what I said? Innes is starved for affection and for love, and he's he's starting to get that finally for the first time. Um, but yeah, the sex scene. So they, um, you know, they're out drinking whiskey by the fire, and think they get real rowdy. Um, they get they get totally soused, and then the deal was that Innes was going to switch places with Jack and go back up on the mountain to to scout for the coyotes. And then um, the, he's too drunk, so he sleeps outside in the fire, uh, like by the fire. But then in the middle of the night, the fire goes out. He's freezing. This is going to be a real detailed play-by-play. And uh, Jack comes out of the tent, and he's he's like, "Why don't you get in here and stop your your yammering or something?" Uh, and he comes inside, and then I mean, I know this from the book, and it's it's not as like explicitly described in the movie but um jack takes innis's hand and then puts it on his crotch in that scene in the in the tent and that's when he recoils and they have this like intense it's it's like it's almost a proper scrap kind of like wrestling moment that turns into making out and then eventually they just you know drop trow bend him over and spit in his hand and 
me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there you go. Um, and yeah. it lasts seemingly approximately 15 seconds. Yeah. Uh, because the passion is so intense. And I mean, you could just imagine being kind of locked up on a mountain with only sheep to stare at how horny you would get, you know? I mean, the sheep are lucky that this happened. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, they've, they pass out and in the morning, uh, Innes sort of comes to, you can tell that he's, and this is all the nonverbal acting. You, you get this real detailed sort of account only through uh, physical acting of him sort of, I mean, it seems like he's, you know, did I dream this? Is this real? And then he like looks down and probably notices that his pants are still down and he's like, okay, this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then he tells, I mean, I, I forget if this is like immediately after, or I think it's like, you know, looks like in the days leading, like at, after this event, he tells Jack that this was a one-time thing and um, that they can't do this or whatever. And Right. And uh, he's like, you know I ain't queer, right? And and uh, Jack is like me neither. Yep. You know, so you know it. It feels like at least at this point they're trying to convince themselves that it's like it's just a you and me thing. Right. Right. I also noticed that um, this movie exists in a firm moral universe where sin is instantly punished. So of course. Uh, because they did this, a sheep has been killed in the night. Yeah, it's their fault. Right. It was yeah. God. Yeah, I just wanted to make make it clear that I noticed that. <laughs> um, yeah, and then even though they had that exchange, uh, they they basically fall in love while yeah. they're up there together, and they start getting more and more sort of free about expressing their love at least to each other it doesn't seem like there's anybody around they're you know rolling around right. um, they feel comfortable because they think they're alone up there yeah and they develop like a, a real intimate relationship um which gets discovered by randy quaid's character through binoculars um and then i think i forget exactly how they get basically their 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 job is ended early yeah, the trip gets cut short because uh, two th- one is uh, Jack has a health problem in his family and there's a storm. There's a so, storm coming, right. And they had an incident where the sheep mixed with the sheep of another herd. Right. Which so, I noticed in that scene, the other shepherds had those long canes, you know, those really long canes. And I was like, you know, like little Bo Beep. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Carries yeah. that long cane, and I was like, "Is that where that like Looney Tunes trope comes from?" And did shepherds really like, like yoink sheep by their neck with these long canes? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and I guess it is. Well, the hook for getting people off the stage yeah. was definitely something that happened. Give him the hook. Give him the hook. Um, that incidents where I really could have used that when running shows. So they go their separate ways. And but there's not before Enos is so bummed out that he actually gets in a fist fight with Jack. Right. They get into a couple scraps because they're unable he can't to express himself. So it just comes out in violence. Right. Which I mean, this movie is really like a, a portrait of the layers of toxic masculinity. I mean, I don't know if toxic masculinity is exclusively what it's about, but it, it touches on some aspects of how, um, 
toxic the culture of toxic masculinity can often lead to men being unable to express themselves becoming repressed and then punching people (laughs) right like i i think that's the lens we use to express that sort of uh analysis now but it wouldn't have been exactly that at the time they made the movie but it's just different ways of saying kind of the same thing right and as powerful as the tent scene may have been i think this scene where they they part ways and ennis's character wanders into an alleyway and he's uh i mean you think he's gonna throw up he's basically heaving and then starts crying that's is one of the most powerful scenes of this movie to me yeah um, and then a guy like walks by him and he's like, what the fuck are the you fuck looking are you at? Looking at? Yep. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, and then cut to basically Innes's marriage with Michelle Williams. They start having babies yeah. there. I mean, well, so at this point, so like the first third of this movie is that first trip to Brokeback Mountain, right? It, maybe even less. But a lot of it. Yeah. And then the rest of the, you know, and that trip is sort of like very slow and tranquil. The, the movie's paced very strangely in a way. Because mm-hmm. this first trip is very slow and tranquil and takes its time. The rest of the movie over the course of years happens very fast. You yeah. Know, we go, we cover months and years in the space of a few scenes and, you know, cover a lot of their life over the rest of the movie. And it all happens really quickly. Yeah. There's no other like actual date confirmations, except there's at one point where Jack mentions the 20 years that have passed. So I think it's yeah. about, well, they, they occasionally say like, Oh, it's been four years right, or like right, right. whatever. Um, and so with that, uh, it had me thinking about just sort of like the structure of the film and how, um, you know, so I had this, um, I took this, uh, playwriting class and in it, um, there's one class where my teacher said that at least with classical playwriting, the idea was that when you are writing a play, the idea is that you are portraying in this story, the most important moment in a person's life like what happens over the course of this play is the most important moment in these people's lives, you know, and um, movies don't work entirely the same way. Mm -hmm. But in this film, I feel like that's kind of uh, it. Basically I, I kept thinking back to that because the way the movie I think works is that this summer trip for them, that was the most important moment in their lives mm-hmm. and everything that happens after that is just the ripples of that event. Right. And we see what happens after that. And basically Enos's inability to come to terms with it. Um, And stylistically... Jack's desire to basically recreate that moment as much as possible. Wanting to like go back, relive it, rebuild something that is is kind of a... And there winds up being a stylistic kind of note to that, too, because in the real, quote-unquote, real world, where they pretend to be straight and uh, ignore uh, their actual desires in an effort to kind of keep up this front in a world that wouldn't accept, you know, their actual relationship, Mm -hmm. the style 
of what we're seeing every you know everything is presented as it's all very stressful it's very loud you know it's the wind is always blowing there's always a lot of screaming kids it's very gray it's just portrayed as very unpleasant every time we go back to Brokeback Mountain the colors are turned up it's quiet it's green it's like an oasis it kind of f- puts us in their perspective of seeing kind of how they are experiencing the world of like we go back to this gray shitty life that is just there to be endured mm-hmm. until the next time we can get out back to this oasis of calm pleasantness of Brokeback Mountain again. Yeah, that's such a good observation. I didn't actually you know, the think actual of that, but... movie is like that. Yeah, yeah, like any scene especially in the interior home of like Ennis's life has such, it's so dreary. And so it's just always in the state of falling apart. Yeah. And it's, it's gray. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just something I felt like happened once we left. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, they both end up getting married. I think the aspects of Jack's, life leading up to his marriage is not necessarily that important or even no. that interesting, except for he's, he's actively seeking out sexual experiences with other men. Um, yeah. I, I noticed uh, he need, you know what they needed? They, in this time period, they needed Polari. What's that? I was like, do, was, the grinder, they need grinder. <laughs> they need grinder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Polari was a, um, for those of you who don't know, was uh, I think it was in the Victorian era, but it it was a um, kind of like a secret code language for gay men to uh, use with each other, uh-huh. like to a, communicate. Like, are you Fred of Dorothy's? But the Wizard of Oz hadn't come out yet, so or maybe it had, and yeah, it had. They, they yeah, but I think it was even like uh, it, it existed as a language at a higher level of sophistication than that. Hmm. It actually had like grammatical rules. I was trying to think of what a like a. a, a grinder direct message as a telegram would look like <laughs> like <laughs> verse bottom stop seeking man for fun times stop. well they send each other postcards yeah they do it's yeah. pretty much they, they pretty much have it down um well and also we get the fireworks scene right the fireworks scene which actually because you had mentioned it i was looking out for it and i was like oh that didn't really happen at any point that really has much to do with no, Jack. it didn't matter very much at all. <laughs> but they used it in a lot of a lot of promotional shots. Yeah. Well, it's pretty. Yeah. So Ennis is has Ennis has two kids with his wife, um, and he's miserable. And then <laughs> and then Jack eventually meets Anne Hathaway's character, whose name I Alma. Oh no, wait, Alma is Lurleen. Lurleen. Um, oh, hold on, let me look it up. And. Um, yeah, like he ends up getting married to Lorene. Lorene. Okay. They okay. end up getting married and then they start meeting up again and trying to 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 have a regular kind of schedule of like going yeah. back to Brokeback. Um Did you notice too that um the first time when Jack is on the way that Enos is waiting for him like a teen girl waiting for her first date? Yeah, like how he has like seven empty beers around him. He's like unable a to full pack of cigarettes, he, can't sit still. Yeah, it's pretty adorable it is and yep. then they have this uh intense 
it's like they can't keep from making out in the alleyway by his house and which his wife sees. his wife sees and this is where uh, michelle williams performance becomes really like kind of mind-blowing to me is you you see it's such a uh like i think to portray that takes so much emotional intelligence there's so many layers to the the feelings that she's trying to portray and she does it so so well and i guess this is like a bit of an uh, a trivia bit but uh, at the time of this movie actually michelle williams and heath ledger started a relationship and they had their daughter right before this or i guess it was before this movie right um i think it was around this time anyway yeah they fell in love oh they actually fell in love on the set of this film she gave birth to their daughter shortly after the premiere um and i think there is i read something about how she would you know make she would like kind of guide them into making out in front of her in order to fuel this kind of jealousy or this kind of feeling into mind their real relationship for some semblance of the the real emotions that would come out of this oh that's fascinating i mean it's pretty intense i also read that in that scene um where they're making out passionately outside of his house after their first reunion that Heath Ledger almost broke his nose. <laughs> See that that's the tidbit. I thought you were referring to that with the last scene when you were talking about how intense it was. I remember you specifically mentioning that they're kissing so passionately Heath Ledger almost broke his nose. Which is Th- it's that's something I remembered. Surprising considering that he actually gets, you know, it's like you would think that would happen when he got punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, love, hate, they're all sides of the same coin, such passion. <laughs> so Alma is on to them, but she doesn't say anything and just kind of, you know, yeah. observes as um, he keeps going off and is obviously well, is lying. What is she going to do? Yeah, at this, at this point in this place, I mean, what they're trying to also portray is the, the unspeakableness, the unspeakable right. nature of this whole thing and how this fuels like layers and layers of suffering for everybody involved. Yeah, the, the, the situation that you know, basically what society has caused here for all of these people, it's not just the two of them that's suffering, but it's her, it's the children, it's the other family like this the pain here is radiating out amongst a lot of people yeah yeah and the only thing that can actually look break through it is Ennis and jack's love for each other which it's like well if it could be if it could be in the open like if they could actually be true about what they're feeling then all of the dam would break and all of this pain would stop but they can't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know yeah I mean, they can be happy briefly, but, you know, he has to risk his job every time he goes to Brokeback Mountain at this point. Yeah, yeah. And Jack's character is has started kind of planning for this fantasy life that they could have together. And he presents it to Innes at one point, and Innes is reluctant and doesn't want, he doesn't think it's it's realistic or possible. And so they have this sort of falling out around this, and they start kind of parting ways a little bit and eventually Alma um Innes's wife confronts him about it this is after they've already split up though they've had a divorce yeah it it made me think too a little bit have you ever seen the black mirror episode striking vipers uh yeah the one about the VR the two two guys straight guys that start falling in love as VR characters yeah yeah um I know it might seem kind of th- there's something a little silly about that premise yeah 
but at the same time, you know, the way that story ends is that uh, Anthony Mackie's character, it, it's it's kind of the same sort of issue keeps is happening in that story and that like the fact that they can't be honest about what's happening and they're like hiding it from everybody is causing pain in the rest of their lives like Anthony Mackie's wife knows something is going on and it's destroying their relationship and the difference in the two stories is that at the end Anthony Mackie tells her the truth and they come to an arrangement where like I forget if it's like once a month or once a year or something the two friends play the game and she's allowed to go and have uh an extramarital tryst herself mm-hmm. and the rest of the time uh the marriage stays monogamous and that's the arrangement um and I just kept thinking about how like if something as open-minded as that could have just existed in this time it would have spared all of these people so much suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it, it was something that crossed my mind. I don't know. I do see that actually, that, that comparison is pretty interesting. Um, in terms of the plot, what happens after that? They, they, the, so Innes's marriage falls apart. They get a divorce. He has to pay child support. He moves away into like a sad little trailer home. But Jack is thrilled. Jack is thrilled. He's like he, he driving to the moment he finds out about the divorce. He's driving. What is he singing along to? It's like some. Oh, it's, it's like, I forget the song. Duh, but... duh, duh, coming out my oh, yes. <laughs> I don't think it was that song. But so yeah, something kind of like. But also the music like, when he's leaving is so sad. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So he tries <laughs> to basically he gets it in his head that this means they can have a life together and it becomes very clear upon first seeing him and they, they chat about how this is not going to happen. And his daughters with him or his daughters are with him for the weekend. So he's like, we can't do this. I don't, you know, he doesn't want them to see. So the Jack leaves and is cry. It's really heartbreaking. He's crying to this now really sad song on the way back. He's driven for 14 hours or something. (laughs) That's Wyoming baby. (laughs) God damn from Texas. (laughs) But yeah. he drives all the way to Mexico to pick up hookers there. Yeah, yeah. He and goes. He goes to visit like male sex workers in Mexico as a, as a, kind of consolation prize, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> At some point before this, too, Enos, you get a like a window into why he's so like he is because he describes uh, an experience he had as a child where his father made him and his brother look at what happened to two other gay men who had been discovered. Yeah, one man specifically who had been murdered in his his town growing up, and his dad actually took them to look at him and explain what happened, and he had been attacked and mutilated because he lived with another man. And in the, in the recounting of the story, Innes says, for all I know, he could have been the one that did it. Right. Yeah, so he it was... I mean, I think this is the big trauma of his life, his life, you know, and this is why he's so repressed and right. Uh, Or at least it explains his fear. Mm -hmm. You know, you understand his caution that was still happening to gay people in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, in some places in the, in the world, it still happens now. Right. So So, they, they go, go. they go on one last sort of fishing trip. um, And the tension between their, difference of needs 
is kind of mounting and mounting. And um, there's this really heartbreaking moment when, I mean, Jack just has this dream of them living together and having a normal life and the kind of life they could have had. And Innes is like, that's not realistic. I'm not going to be able to see you until November. And then they, they want to have like, you know, they, they basically, they're, they're, the distance between them is growing. And there's this flashback. It's hard to tell if you don't notice that Jake Gyllenhaal's mustache uh, disappears for a moment, but <laughs> there's like a, he has a flashback of their first time on Brokeback Mountain and them holding each other. And then he sees Innes driving away. And shortly afterwards in the, in the film, Innes receives a postcard that with a stamp on it saying deceased. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's such, such a, I mean, I, I think I gasped because I forgot that's how you found out. And in reading back some of the uh, kind of reception of this movie, at the time there was confusion from some people about whether Jack had died or not. And it's so clear that he had. Yeah, that it's, I don't it's really, pretty clear. <laughs> I don't understand why there would be any confusion. But yeah. I so, mean, because it's off screen? I guess. Or maybe the confusion is how he died because that is a bit vague. So he, yeah. he then calls... Um, Wait, wait, before we do that, I just want to back up to that that part bef- when they have their last meeting. Yeah. Um, number one, I just wanted to mention that it is a little bit amusing to me how over the course of their multiple meetings on Brokeback Mountain, you get to see them slowly kind of turning into old farts. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it like kind Jake of, Jill- Yeah. kind of looks like, okay, so they basically get really, really thick carpety sideburns like like i've never seen such thick sideburns they look fake they look like they're glued on and also i think they just like put some glue around their eyes to make them more wrinkly maybe jake gyllenhaal also gets kind of fat yeah (laughs) yeah he does get a bit of a a gut Um, and you know they get like richer and like well relatively richer especially jake gyllenhaal and they're like less able to like do the riding. They're sort of like just sort of driving up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like it's they're, they're tired. Less pretense of <laughs> that, you know, it's just like, well, let's just drive up there, get a cabin. Yeah. Like enough of this bullshit cowboy stuff. It's the eighties too, so I feel like they're like, let's just move to Miami. Like, what the fuck yeah, right. are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um but then also uh this last meeting is when we get the the line, the famous line from the movie. That's right. That's right. The famous line. Do you want to deliver it? Um. Yeah, sure. I guess it's it's in this last kind of conversation that they have. Jake Gyllenhaal is well. There's one line that he delivers before this, and is I think supposed to be the night before, and he said something like. You know, sometimes I miss you so much that I just can't stand it. That is a very powerful moment. Stood out to me too, yeah. And yeah, the next day they're talking about the... the Basically, Jack is complaining about his needs not being met in their relationship and they don't see each other frequently enough. And um, as he's looking off into the distance, he says, I wish I knew how to quit you. I actually thought Heath Ledger was going to be the one to say that. Hmm. And it's... And I was so- yeah. It's interesting to me that that's like the standout. I mean, do people, I did people kind of anchor onto that because it's so Southern and funny or easy to make fun of? Like, it's not the most powerful moment in the movie. 
it's the kind of line that like lends itself to like melodrama mm, right. you know so people i think latched onto it for that reason yeah it became I I the quit you. it did become the line of the movie it was it was a meme before we were calling them memes right right yeah um so yeah jack drives off or Ennis drives off jack watches him go after having this flashback um and then Ennis gets the postcard yeah and when he does call anne hathaway i want to give anne hathaway props for the way she does this scene because she i think she is really good in this scene she is i agree and it actually brings it brings up a lot of questions the way that she acted it actually is a very open performance and that you can it it kind of carves out room to interpret her awareness of their situation her awareness of his death things are like not not clear cut you know and so basically he calls her to well do you want to recount this part he calls her up to confirm that he's died which she does and to ask what happened she tells him that jack died in a simple roadside accident right enos then has a flash in his mind that jack could very easily have been killed in a homophobic attack Mm -hmm. instead and it is left an open question as to which of the two are true right either one is plausible especially given what we know about jack's kind of relative recklessness in the way he lived his life but also the nature of the injuries that she describes that too yeah yeah what she described is kind of a little far-fetched not impossible it's um, far-fetched in terms of a roadside like her story was that he was changing a tire and it blew up and and then broke his nose yeah and jaw and blah blah blah. but um yeah yeah i think i mean what is your interpretation of this what do you think happened you know i think enos's interpretation is the more likely one Although, at the same time, uh, what are the odds that something like this would have gone down at the side of, like, either he was ambushed on the side of a road, or he was driven out there by somebody, which I think could, in fact, be quite plausible, I suppose. I just, you know, the... Odds are Enos is correct, but it is left open to interpretation. And I just at least sincerely hope it's uh, what happened to in her version since yeah, that would be quicker. I do think the the fact that it's left open to interpretation becomes a pretty powerful device in the plot because... Enos it, is also very paranoid. Yeah, Enos is paranoid. He is living back the the trauma of what he saw and witnessed as a child. And also the fact that we don't know, uh, yeah, it kind of highlights that paranoia and why it's warranted because at this point, even somebody's wife could be willing to lie about the way her husband died in order to 
hide the fact that you know he was gay. See, I, I I don't believe that she would have been in on something like that. I don't think so either. But the way that she delivered that part of her performance uh, made me sort. Sorry, the way that she delivered that part of the performance made me think that like she she did catch on to the fact that he was into guys and like she wasn't totally sure what happened either, but she wasn't willing to. Yeah. And she's willing to be dismissive and Mm -hmm. kind of just brush it under the rug. Yeah. Yeah. I got that too. But what also happened was, um, she, uh, she mentions that he wanted to have his ashes scattered at Brokeback mountain but she never knew if that was a real place. And given kind of the fabulous that Jack was, she always assumed that it wasn't real. And when Enos confirms that it was in fact a real place, she makes this kind of noise in the back of her throat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just a small little thing. And it you it goes by very quickly. But uh, I thought it was a nice kind of small acknowledgement of an emotion in that moment that was a good bit of acting what do you think what was the emotion you read from that just you know the fact that it was all true you know that there was more to him than she maybe gave him credit for all the time that he wasn't just merely a you know someone who told tall tales yeah you know there there was something to the man yeah yeah or maybe in that moment she kind of pieced it all together that was my thought yeah but but also like you know if she if she was someone who had dismissed her husband as somebody who was all lies uh, and then got this acknowledgement that you know occasionally he told the truth she could have felt that you know maybe there was a piece of their relationship that was not a lie either like at some point maybe he really loved her too right that's true because i mean we didn't talk about their the, the the portrayal of their marriage too too much but um there's several instances in which jack's character complains that she's basically really absent and could didn't yeah. doesn't notice anything about what's going on in his life so there's a lot of distance between them um but, but yeah. maybe once they had something yeah i want to talk about like this this next scene which is like uh just heartbreaking and and it's ennis is upon finding out that um that jack's wish was to have his ashes scattered on Brokeback Mountain. Um, he he finds out through his wife that actually the ashes are with his parents. And so he asks where, if they're still in, you know, whatever hometown um, Jack said they were in. And so he goes to visit them to try to collect the ashes to scatter them for him. And oh, I feel like I'm going to cry just talking about this scene because uh, it's just so like it's this this the interaction between him and the parents to me the fact that the mom gets it you know like yeah that i don't know why that just hits me like a truck like to see the mom just be like i like you can just see that she doesn't care she loves her son she would want them to be happy and to honor whatever they had and so she she tells him kind of the dad is a huge dick, just to... Yeah, I don't, don't even want to talk about the dad. I, okay. Well, no, I'm just kidding. Like, he's... The dad's a huge dick. He, we, I mean, that's it. That's the end of the analysis for him. Yeah, his whole his whole deal, the dad is like, 
he obviously caught on to it. He says like, oh yeah, Jack would talk about, you know, coming here and with you and building a ranch and building a life. And then recently it was another guy that he said he was going to come here and like build a life with. And um, so he's basically like, I'm on to you and you're not going to take his ashes. He's going to be buried in the family plot. And then the mom says, you know, if you want, I've always kept Jack's bedroom the way that it was when he was a kid. And if you want to go see it, you're welcome to. Um, yeah. And then what does he find in the room? So in the original trip to Brokeback Mountain, when they were leaving, it's a line that you could very easily miss. Uh, Enos complains that he forgot his shirt. And when you get to this last scene, it turns out that Jack has had this shirt the whole time since 1963 and has kept it and not only kept it, but kept it threaded into one of his own and almost like an embrace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he, he discovers these shirts and takes them and wraps them up and, when he's down in the first floor, the mom sees the shirt in his hands, immediately grabs a paper bag to wrap it up for him and asks him if she could, you know, he could, he could come back to see them again. She, this is another moment. I mean, I, I, I actually don't know who this, this actor is. Um, no, I didn't know either, but actually. it's a brief, but very like powerful and moving performance. Um, her name is Roberta Maxwell. Okay. She's Canadian. Huh, interesting. I don't know her from anything else, but um, she was able to deliver a lot of information just in the way that she looked at him. And uh, yeah, you get the sense that she knew and understood who her son was and she loved and accepted him for who he was and is supportive of their, their love and basically offers to honor it by helping him I think you get the feeling that she knew those shirts were there. She knew the story. Maybe Jack had even opened up to her about it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's really just one last scene after that, and it's Innes' daughter coming to visit him in a brand new, very 80s-looking car <laughs> and announcing yeah. announcing to him that she is going to get married. And um, again, like this complex reaction, so beautifully acted by Heath Ledger about obviously his complicated feelings about love um his concern for her about her marriage because his probably wasn't what he wanted it to be um and and then it kind of he takes you know he takes it back and he wants to celebrate and support her he takes out the wine and um he's like you know what i'll quit being a cowboy if it means i can come to your wedding um and then when she drives off (laughs) (laughs) um God, it's like so it's I don't know why it like it felt so so uh hard to watch this today. <laughs> it's like so sad. <laughs> but yeah, like he 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 goes back to his um wardrobe and opens it and he has the shirts hanging with a photo of Brokeback Mountain and the last lines he says is I swear Jack. And then that's it. Um yeah. so what do you think he's swearing? Well, I think that given that the previous scene was a scene about uh, marriage. I think that it's meant to at least tie into that thematically. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, you know, not a, 
completely a wedding vow, but sort of a declaration of fidelity to their relationship. The the marriage of their shirts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or yeah, they're in, obviously they're enduring like union. The this, love that they had. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. So that is Brokeback Mountain. Did you cry? I missed it up several times. Mm-hmm. Close enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I don't think I leaked, but uh, I I got it got uh, it got super dusty a few times mm-hmm. um, during the course of the movie. I'm, you know, I'm I'm prone to getting that way. Yeah, um, it's a tough. You know, this movie, it's kind of like there's a part of me that feels. Well, I, what I was saying earlier was that I was not expecting to fall into it so deeply again. I thought it was going to go come up with this, my, my, my like 2021 kind of woke awareness and, and read all this like problematic or potentially problematic um, aspects of this movie. And I'm, you know, there's, I'm sure somebody could tear it apart critically for those things. It's obviously super white. It's super heteronormative in terms of the portrayal of, of queerness. Um, but then again, both of the actors are straight. Both of the actors are straight. I mean, there's not, as far as we know, no queer actors in this at all. And I mean, that was like, at the time. I mean, who is who would have been like a really popular, openly gay actor to play one of these roles? You know, in two thousand and five. Yeah, like, I don't know. I'm trying to think back. I think that it's it's tough to go down that line of kind of questioning if it was problematic in any way because what they're portraying is the problematic nature of (laughs) of repressed homophobic culture and so it kind of like paints that portrait not necessarily the fact that they use straight actors that's an aside but the fact that they're very straight acting they're very like uh you know they're dudes in a lot of ways they have this like Mm -hmm. they don't have any semblance of a gay voice you know yeah, well, I mean, that, number one, I think, is part of the story. You know, that's that's what they're portraying. And two, I mean, there's the flip side of that where you don't want to just portray a stereotype of someone. Yeah, I mean, at know. the time, it was kind of like this, the, the, the main other portrayal in pop culture of gay char- characters was Will and Grace, <laughs> you know, which right. is the complete other end of the spectrum. So there is something to be said about... Um, I mean, it's like, I think in 2005, people would have said like, well, you know, like it shows that gay people can like, they're n- just like us. <laughs> they're just like us. It's so fucking weird. So awful. Like, um, well, and this is why I was, I mentioned in part one, I was so taken aback by the reaction to it because the fact that that needed to be said was so shocking to me. Yeah. I think now it would be more... I think now, like, it, yeah, it would feel a bit Nowadays, less... it almost feels like this is too tame. Oh, totally. I actually read, like, uh, even back then, I read, like, an, uh, a review that was pretty negative from a kind of, I forget what publication, but it was a queer publication, and uh, they were criticizing it for being too tame and basically too heteronormative, and I can see that. But I think you're right. It's a portrayal of a story. It's somebody... 
and it, you know it's basically like you know the the two main characters are heteronormative that's mm-hmm. you know what they're struggling with through the entire film right yeah i um, guess is there any other like plot point that you wanted to discuss before we got into like the the other details like but the budget and no, I think I think we got it all, man. All right. So this movie had a budget of $14 million, which was recouped within the first two weeks. It did incredibly well. Uh, it grossed, or wait, not the first two weeks. The film received a limited release in the United States, and it grossed $547 million in its first weekend. What? Yeah. Okay. That was more than I was going to guess. Yeah. It's it did it did really really well financially. Um, That's half a billion dollars. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Um, the other money stuff is like less interesting to me, so we can just skip it. I think. I yeah, mean, no, that's fine. That... There was one place in the world where it, it was banned. Do you want to guess where that where that is? Uh, only one place. I mean, I think that's what I read, but it's got it's like. Was looking, it China? Yes, it was China, which is okay. wild because Ang Lee is a Chinese director. Well, is he Chinese or is he from Taiwan? Oh, um, I thought he was Chinese. Oh, he's a Taiwanese film director. That could have had something to do with it. Okay. But uh, also the Chinese are, um, you know, not super into the subject matter either yeah but you know what's really funny is even though it was banned in china the term broke back has become slang for gay people there so it clearly had a big cultural effect it made it somehow <laughs> yeah okay um well it it did become kind of slang in a way you know that term uh broke back blank has become sort of a shorthand yeah yeah i think it's been adopted in other places too i just thought it was it was kind of funny in in that setting on rotten tomatoes it's got an audience score of 82 percent, but a critics a critics rating of 87 percent. so it's okay. you know done Close. pretty well yeah. um and as you can imagine i mean it, it got a lot of favorable reviews altogether roger ebert gave it a maximum rating of four stars in his review. Uh, he said he thought the film was as observant as the work of Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman, which oh, is Jesus. pretty high praise. Um, and then obviously a lot of conservative publications trashed it as, <laughs> <laughs> as it was uh, pushing the quote unquote gay agenda. God, I hate that gay agenda. Yeah people there was quite a bit of fear in the in the conservative realm about how you know this could affect the children of today or yesterday yeah we should show them short bus next uh gee yeah seriously gene who is this gene shallot of the today shallot gene shallot so he described the character of jack twist as a quote sexual predator who quote Mm. track tracks in us down and coaxes him into sporadic trysts so this is what i was talking about (laughs) that's interesting to me because i'm like i mean i'm like what does that mean about you that that was your interpretation right he's like well, like, Ennis wouldn't have done it if, like, Jack didn't pressure him. Because, like, he was e- grooming him. <laughs> Everybody, like, you know, could be groomed. Like, sometimes I think about that stuff, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh my god, I had no idea. Gene Shalit is that um he's that movie reviewer who looks like a Harry Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, okay, I also read that Shalit actually has an openly gay son <laughs> who who wrote an open letter to the Glad community um uh saying that, you know, he has an unpopular opinion, but he's not a homophobe and he had no intention of casting you know any kind of like negative thought about the gay community whatever so i don't know why his son had to come out and say that for him just defending his dad i don't know yeah and then okay so i i didn't actually i forgot to copy like where this review was from but the review that came out around the same time as uh as the movie and this was from like a queer publication that was against the movie um <laughs> They, I just thought this was a good statement. They said, there's some making out, and of course the early and really rather who-doggy spit-in-the-hand cornholing consummation, enough in short to cause the most straight guys to hit their theater ceiling and leave the cinema with a possibly quite real sexual crisis. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. Um, in terms of awards, this got so many awards. It did really, really yeah. well. A lot of nominations for like pretty much every actor, but um, uh, yeah, it, got, it won the Oscars for best director, best adapted screenplay, and best original score. Mm. Uh, which that was one thing you said you were expecting some like classical music. Yeah, a not lot, a lot of music. It's all. I mean, there, there's a lot of music, but it's all just steel string acoustic guitar. Right, and but it also. It, I feel like it comes in pretty rarely. It only. You know, like I thought there would be a love, like a leitmotif for the kind of like love story. And that turned out to be true, but that was it, I kind of feel like. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. To me, there's a lot of like noodling. It's like a lot of like <laughs> guitar noodling all the time. Okay, yeah. I yeah. should I should have called there being a little bit more country music. I remember not liking the music when I first saw this. And now I, I, I'm like, it's fine. I don't think it's anything... I don't think it's I'm like warm on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they actually could have done something more. It's very severe. Severe. Really? You think, I feel like it's, if anything, it's like real soft and vanilla. Oh, I found it. I mean, it's very spare and you know, you mentioned, I, I find steel string to be a bit harsh, harsh. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Um, so yeah, Oscar for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Original Score. Uh, Led Ledger and Gyllenhaal and Michelle Williams were all nominated for Best so. Actors. Uh, and it was also nominated for Best Picture, but it, none of them actually won those. Do um, we know what won that year? Crash actually won over this. Oh, and right. The historical injustice. It's a controversy to this day. Yes. Um, oh, of course. Why did I even ask? At the Golden Globes, it got Best Director, Best Motion Picture, Best Screenplay, Best, best Original Song for the song A Love That Will Never Grow Old by Emmylou Harris, which is not... Fict I'm always confused about movies, like songs from movies that are not actually in the movie. Yeah, I don't get that. It must. It plays over the credits, I'm assuming? I, not even. It's a Willie Nelson song. It probably if you like watch the credits till the end... It would play, but it's just a weird sister yeah, piece. I to feel the like movie. that shouldn't count. Yeah, I don't think if so. If it's either. not in the movie, it doesn't count. Um, the first, this was the first film to win Best Director at the Academy Awards. Directors Guild of America 
BAFTA Awards, Golden Globes, and Critics' Choice Awards. So, so Ang Lee really swept up with oh, this the, the quintuple slam. And although it was banned in China, uh, China celebrated Ang Lee's win. <laughs> of course they did. Um, these are a few alternative titles I thought were interesting. In Spain, it was called El Terreno Vedado, which translates to the forbidden terrain. <laughs> In Latin America, <laughs> in Latin America, it was called "Secreto en la Montaña," the secret in the mountain. And in Hungarian, I can't, I don't, I can't read this, but it's oh, please try. It's "Tul Tul." I will have to call Adam "Tul Abaratzagon," beyond friendship. <laughs> also, a fun fact: this was adapted into an opera. Okay. After the film, and I watched a portion of it, and it was the worst thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's so, whereas the film is so free of dialogue in an opera, everything has to be sung and explained. So they're literally standing there holding each other, being like, I'm afraid. I what can't is imagine this feeling a in property my heart? worse yeah. for ad- adapted. Like Enos singing an opera song. Yeah. Like mumbling through it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, that did not do very well. What else did... Oh, I thought this was interesting. So I have actually a list of like some of the actors that were considered for the roles and actors that turned down the roles. So among the actors considered for the male leads were Josh Hartnett, Colin yeah. Farrell, <gasps> Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Billy Crudup. Oh. Okay. And Ben Affleck. Mm. I think it would have been I, I would only have accepted Matt Damon As one if ben, if ben Affleck was the other Oh my <laughs> god <laughs> Yeah Oh my god Can you say I just don't know how to quit you in a Boston accent <laughs> I just don't know how to quit you kid <laughs> Kid I, just, I don't know how to quit you guy Um, I guess Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Ryan Phillippe, and Brad Pitt all turned down this film. They were offered the role, like one a role or the other, and turned them down. I don't think they could have done as good a job. Yeah, I don't think so either. I'm. It's hard to imagine anybody else, you know, in these in mm-hmm. these. Uh, Gus Van Sant and Joel Schumacher were interested in directing this. Imagine. Okay. I think. I think actually, Gus Van Sant. I see the former, not the latter. Yeah, not the latter. It would have been a really interesting movie. I mean, I think Gus Van Sant could have brought this to a place that's like, it would have been way less mainstream, but way more sensitive probably to the queer community. I honestly don't see it as uh, uh, the Gus Van Sant movie. I'm trying to picture it in my mind, and I don't see it being too different. Yeah, I mean... That's yeah. It's I love Gus Van Sant. I think that there's this. I actually don't. You don't. But not typically. No. I I I I don't usually. I find but... his I fi- find his films like pretty mesmerizing. Hmm. I, in the sense that this movie has very little dialogue. Um, a lot is communicated through the direction. I think those well, are things that thing, Gus, yeah. Gus Van Sant's really good at. I right. think I think that there, like it's it's Jerry. There would have been. A, a sort of increase or amplified shock, surprise, and violence somewhere towards the end. Mm, I don't know if that would have been good. I agree. Yeah. Oh, one thing that I wanted to say, and I was planning on 
I wanted to look up like all of the porn parodies of this that have ever been made and like write a list of all of the, (laughs) all the titles. Surprisingly, I couldn't find a single one. Not a single one. I mean, yes, it's been parodied. It it has been parodied. I, I, uh, definitely found some examples of that, but like there was no sort of alternate title parody, you know, I find that incredibly hard to believe. Also, were you able to successfully find any like Brokeback Mountain branded sex toys? I didn't look yet. I can, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you remember how like, you know, saving private Ryan, there was like shaving Ryan's privates. I thought there would be like a, a version of. There's a walking dead porn parody. So yeah, you know, it's gotta, can... gotta be something. Well, I think we have talked in quite a lot of detail about this film. Yeah, dude. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you wanted to talk about that we didn't really touch on? I think we got it pretty much covered. All right. David, I would like to know, was it better late or never? Well, Justin, typically when I've been someone who hasn't seen the film, I've been a pretty harsh uh, respondee. I think I have more nevers than the average guest. This is going to be an exception to that tendency because I am going to say that this one was a better late. I thought that this was a very good movie and I was very happy to catch up with it. Um, And it's not just that it lived up to all the hype. Uh, This movie had a lot of hype. And I would say it didn't like exceed it it more just kind of like matched it you know the movie in a lot of ways was sort of exactly what i expected it to to be which is a big reason why i sort of didn't see it in the first place because there's a term or there's a phrase i use a lot which is uh the story writes itself and when brokeback mountain came out i sort of felt that was very applicable to this one where you know it's the same reason why a lot of my predictions i think were right where i just sort of i felt like a really new what this was going to be. And so a lot of the enjoyment then comes down to execution. Like how good's the execution going to be? And, you know, it also just leads to a tendency to feel like you don't have to run out and see it immediately. Long story short, but, um, but so finally catching up with it and actually being like, all right, so let's see how good this execution actually is. The execution's really good. And, in particular, the acting. And we've talked about Heath Ledger specifically a lot, but it's not just him. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal, Michelle Williams, Anne Hathaway, Kate Mara as Enos's daughter. Like, the acting is uniformly excellent. Ang Lee's uh, work directing was pretty good, but uh, let's see, who was the cinematographer? Yeah, because... that's what I was, I was going to say. We didn't really talk about the cinematography, but I thought that was pretty so incredible. Rodrigo Prieto was like, the cinematographer. Great work. The compositional choices were just consistently super, I thought, super amazing. Yeah. So many very painterly compositions. So many also like, I mean, directorial choices that communicated a lot of information. But these like quintessential profile shots of cowboys looking down and tipping their hats and like revealing their eyes and then hiding their eyes like... This was all done yeah. really, yeah. really well. 
And we talked about too as we went through it how much it like kind of put you know put us in their emotional headspace, which is you know that's good cinematography. It yeah. was motivated cinematography, you know. So not just you know thoughtless pointing of the camera, but actually like something that actually affected what we came away with as audience members. So mm-hmm. very well done in that regard. And so, you know, it is a film that I'm really glad that I finally caught up with. So I definitely feel like this is a, this is like the quintessential better late. All right. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and thanks uh, a lot for hosting Justin. Yeah. Thanks for appearing on my show. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i've lost it forever <laughs> it's mine now next week we'll be talking to tilda swinton oh my god if you were getting guests <laughs> like tilda swinton i'd let you take it <laughs> all right well take care dave uh, thank you looking forward to next time thank you very much and if you would like to uh email the podcast by the way it's better late than never pod at gmail.com and you can always tweet at us at better late underscore pod Justin, do you have anything you want to plug before we take off? Just, um, I don't know. Listen to this beautiful harp outro by yours truly. Nice. (laughs) Catch you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.